We're starting this week in a new series uh, called Night Vision, Seeing God in the Dark. Uh, There's something about the darkness that uh, causes anxiety levels to rise. Uh, When my kids were much younger, putting them to bed at night was always a challenge. Uh, because in the dark, uh, kids, their imaginations get pretty creative. They see things that are, maybe are not there. Um, they, they get worried, get fearful. Trina and I, years ago, we, we used to live in San Francisco, but we went back to see our old stomping grounds, and so we decided to visit Alcatraz. Uh, we, when we lived there, we never went to Alcatraz, so we thought, ah, we'll go back and we'll go as tourists. And uh, so we took the ferry out to the, the, the prison. You know, obviously it, it's not there anymore, but the building is. And on one of the stops on the tour was, uh, was solitary confinement. And as, as the tour guide is talking about this room where, where, where prisoners were punished or put in solitary, uh, this room of utter darkness. So once the door is shut, you can't even see your, your hand in front of your face. And one of the results of that darkness is uh, complete disorientation. I mean, you are disoriented when, uh, when the suffocating darkness comes. And so for those who wanted to in our tour, tour group, they could go and they could experience solitary. And so 10 of us were put in the room and the door was shut. And sure enough, you could not see your hand in front of your face. And if you were a prisoner back in that day, you had no idea what time of day it was. You were disoriented. You didn't know when it was time to, to wake up or time to sleep. Um, and, and when you hit the metaphorical darkness, that indeed happens. In fact, on that tour, we had some tourists that needed to be reminded this was just a minute, okay? You're going to be okay. Uh, the door is going to open again. But darkness has a way of causing the fear to rise. Um, and uh, in this series, we're going to be looking at some, some characters from Scripture who went through some pretty dark times. Uh, when, when, when the lights went, went off, uh, when their soul was eclipsed by significant sorrow. Uh, and we're going to learn about what they learned about God in the dark. There are some things that you can only learn about God in the darkness. You, you, you learn about them in, in the difficult times. And there's things you learn about yourself in, in the darkness. And so we're going to be, uh, we're gonna be looking at, at some, some biblical characters and, uh, and then just really talking about um, how to see God in our difficulties, how to see God in our hardships, how to see God when the dark, darkness is truly suffocating and fear-inducing. So if you want to go to the book of Job, uh, Job chapter 1, I'm going to get there in a second, it's on page 809 in your pew Bibles. Um, if you don't have a Bible with you, that'd be a, it looks just like the one I'm using up here. It uh, looks like this one right here. You'll find the story I'm going to read here in a second. Uh, November 1st, 1755 was a, a pretty dark day for the citizens of Lisbon, Portugal. Uh, it happened to be All Saints Day, which it was a, for, for those who are part of the Catholic Church, it was a very uh, significant high day. And, and in that, that, that morning on November 1st, it was a bright, clear morning, uh, fall morning, and the air was crisp, and uh, people got up and they lit candles on All Saints Day, remembering the saints who had, been, who had passed away, specifically those who had passed away in the previous 12 months. So they lit candles in their homes, and they all headed to church. They headed to the big cathedrals, uh, and they went to mass. And they were gathered in these cathedrals, and about 9.40 in the morning, while, while people were in church, the great Lisbon earthquake took place. Seismologists say that the earthquake was somewhere between 8.5 and 9.0 on the, on the Richter scale. 
The first earthquake was pretty short, uh, intense, that the earth was undulating, and people stayed in the cathedral because the priests were there, and there was this idea that, well, the safest place to be is in God's house. Um, and these giant cathedrals built out of massive stone, uh, most of them stood during that first earthquake. But the second one hit, same level of strength, but it lasted four minutes. And this 8.5, 9.0 earthquake um, caused these great cathedrals to collapse, and the people were still in church. And eyewitnesses who survived the, the crushing weight of the stone falling say that the, 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 those that they saw killed had the look of the terror of death on their faces. But the ones that survived got out into the streets, and as they got out into the streets, what they discovered is that during that first earthquake that shook not only the city, but shook their homes, some of those homes fell over, and the candles they lit in their homes that morning were knocked over and started a fire. In fact, 80% of the city was on fire. It was a great, horrible fire that burned in Lisbon. So the tens of thousands of survivors in Lisbon then ran towards these huge plazas that were downtown, down by the sea. Um, and, and so thousands of people are gathered in these plazas and they're trying to figure out what, what they're going to do as the fire is burning and it's actually getting closer to them. So they're coming up with uh, solutions like climbing aboard ships and boats or maybe even getting in the water and, and swimming. And as they're trying to figure out what they're going to do as the fire is, is moving closer to them, Shrieks fill the air because now a huge tsunami is rolling in. Tens of thousands of people who survived the earthquake, who survived the fire, are now, have now drowned in, in the tsunami. Uh, it, it, for those who survived the tsunami... Uh, th- this, this was just one wave after another uh, of, of just, just tragedy... Um, uh, there was one part of town that was largely spared from the earthquake and from the fire and from the tsunami. Uh, on the, there's a small hill in Lisbon. On the back side of the hill, there's protection from the tsunami and, and, and protection from the fire because this is where the brothels were. This is where the prostitutes were, the, the pimps were, and they didn't go to church that morning. They didn't light candles in their houses. And they were protected from the tsunami. And the people who survived, the, 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 those who were in church, those who, who were followers of God, noticed this and began to ask a question. Where was God? Where was God? Here we were following after you. We're in church. We're in mass. We're, we're trying to remember. We're trying to honor those who have faithfully followed you, God. And, and this is what happens? Earthquake and fire and, and tsunami The 16th century mystic, Teresa of Avila, speaking about her own pain, said this. God, if this is the way you treat your friends, it's no wonder you have so few of them. God, if this is the way life goes for people who follow after you, it's no wonder people choose not to follow after you. This is sort of a natural place we find ourselves when the lights go out. When it gets dark out, we find ourselves in a place of suffering and hardship and difficulty. Where was God? You see, here's, here's the deal. We're all in one of three places. We're uh, either in this place of um, 
Well, we know somebody who's in the dark right now. We know someone who is suffering. We we know someone who's going through a uh, an employment issue, or they're going through uh, a health crisis or financial crisis. We personally aren't there right now, but we know someone who is in the dark. So, so that's some of us. For others of us, um, you, you are in the dark. You are the one who the lights got turned off. You're in this place where uh, your soul has been eclipsed by suffocating darkness. You cannot see the hand in front of your face, and you're disoriented. And the fear levels have risen. Anxiety is at an all-time high. So for you, maybe you know somebody who's in the dark. Maybe you're in the dark. And the third category is this. Maybe you're not in the dark right now, but perhaps at some point in your life, you will experience tragic circumstances. Perhaps at some point in your life, you'll experience some pain and some suffering. And so we need to be people who are aware, are prepared, and know how to see God in the dark, in the times of, of difficulty. So I, I want to begin this, this series by looking at a name of a guy who, um, who, when you think about pain and suffering and darkness, this is one of the first names that comes to mind from Scripture. It's a guy named, a guy named Job who experienced significant pain and suffering. Um, and I want to just read to you a, a bit of, about his suffering. Um, uh, Job is a book right before the book of Psalms. Um, maybe you saw that book and you thought that was a, uh, uh, you know, a book about how to get employed, uh, the book of Job. Um, you have a job, so you never read it. Um, it's a guy's name. It's, it is an unusual name. But um, uh, Job is a guy who enjoyed great health. He had a fantastic family. Uh, he was very prosperous uh, life. He was a follower of God. He was a righteous man. And, um, and, and life was going really, really well for him. But then the darkness set in, wave after wave after wave. In fact, you're, you're going to see this as I read. You're going to just hear one tragedy after another that he experienced. And it's going to prompt some questions, questions that you and I often ask we find ourselves in a dark place. So Job chapter 1, verse 13, the first verses really contain a cosmic conversation between Satan and God. Satan is accusing God of saying that, you know, the only reason Job serves you is because his life is good, and uh, God has a different opinion, and basically allows uh, Job to be exposed to suffering. That's a whole other sermon in and of itself. Um, but here's the, here's the pain that Job went through. Verse 13 One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with this news. Your oxen were plowing with the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabaeans raided us, they stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. The fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home. Suddenly, a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. 
The house collapsed and all your children are dead. I am the only one who escaped to tell you. Job stood up and tore his robe in grief. Chapter 2, verse 7. Pick up the story there. So Satan left the Lord's presence and he struck Job with terrible boils from his head to foot. Job scraped his skin with a piece of broken pottery as he sat among the ashes. I would call that a pretty rough week. Significant loss. The lights going out. And again, it prompts questions. If you've ever found yourself in a place of suffering, it prompts these questions. There are Job's questions uh, from his story. Uh, The first one is this. Um, When you find yourself in a place of darkness, one of the first questions is, what have I done to deserve this? Some of you are asking this question even today. What did I do to deserve this pain? Job uh, says this in chapter 10, verses 1 through 2. I am weary of living. Let me complain freely. I will speak in my sorrow and bitterness. I will say to God, don't just condemn me. Tell me why you are doing it. Why, God? What have I done to deserve this? And again, in the the book of Job, Job 4, 7. Stop and think. Have you ever known a truly good and innocent person who was punished? See, Job is working from this mindset that was, it's an Old Testament mindset. If you obey God, if you do what he's asked you to do, you will be blessed. And so he's lived a righteous and honest life. And so he's saying, why? Why Why are the righteous, why are the honest being punished? Now, in the New Testament, there's a bit of shift in the perspective of suffering because Jesus, he says to us, in this world, you will have trouble. In fact, Peter in 1 Peter talks about that it's God's will that we should suffer. Kind of a shocking verse. Don't want to memorize that one. But there's this idea in Job's time of, hey, if you live a righteous life, you should be immune from suffering. And let me just say, we may never say that out loud today, but down in the deep recesses of our heart, when the lights go off and we experience intense suffering, one of the things that pops to the surface often is this idea of, hey, wait a minute. I'm following God. Why is this happening? What, what, what did I do to deserve this? It's a question we ask God. And actually, this question is rooted in a sense of injustice. A lot of people, when they look at the book of Job, they think it's a book about suffering. And indeed, there's all kinds of suffering and Job's response to suffering. But I think primarily Job is not about suffering. I think primarily the book of Job is about a sense of injustice. This is not fair. This is, this is unjust, God. I did nothing to deserve this. And this question, what have I done to deserve this? The question perhaps you're asking this morning, or you know someone who's asking this question, it's rooted in the sense of this is not just. This is not right This is not fair. It's a natural question we ask when we find ourselves in the dark and we can't see God. The second question is this, where is God when I need him? If if that first question is rooted in a sense of of, uh, injustice, this one is rooted in a sense of abandonment. God, you have abandoned me. You have... I'm alone. I can't find you. I'm crying out. I'm looking for you. I, I can't find you anywhere. 
And Job, we get, we get this question being asked in chapter 23. You hear it in his complaint. My complaint today, I love that verse because it's like, yeah, probably every day he had a new complaint. And I think we've all been there when we find ourselves in the dark. My complaint today is still a bitter one. The complaint hasn't changed. It's still a bitter one. And I try hard not to groan aloud. If only I knew where to find God. I would go to his court. I would lay out my case and present my arguments. God, this is not fair. This is unjust. And if I knew where to find you, I can't find you. I've been looking everywhere for you. But you're, you're, you're hard to find. If I could find you, I'd walk into your courtroom. I'd lay out my case before you. And I would say to you, God, here's my case. And this is why this is, why this is all wrong. But I can't find you because I feel like you've abandoned me. It's a very natural question to ask, and perhaps some of you this morning are asking that question. Where is God when you need him? Third question, is there any reason to keep on hoping? Really behind this is like, what is the point? I mean, if this is what it's like following God, what's the point? First question is rooted in a, a just this sense of injustice. Second question is rooted in a sense of abandonment. This one is rooted in a sense of futility. This is futile. This is how God treats his people. This is how, this is how God treats his, his own kids. What's the point in following after God if this kind of stuff can happen to you? Again, a book of Job, chapter 6, verse 11. Job says, I don't have the strength to endure. I have nothing to live for. I mean, there's no hope. It's just one wave of sorrow after another. It's just one tsunami of tragedy after another. I feel like I'm in solitary confinement. The door's been closed. I can't even see my hand in front of my face. I have no idea what time it is. I don't even care what time it is. I'm in the dark, and I can't see God. Now, just a few observations from those questions that popped to mind. And by the way, some of you this morning may be asking that same question, what's the point? What, what is the point of following God if this is how he treats his sons and daughters? Um, you know, some of you are asking that question, but just a few observations in our pain, in our darkness. There is some comfort, and I would say probably just it's a little bit of comfort of knowing that there are people who have gone before us who have been through immense and intense suffering who have asked the same questions that we are asking, who have been on that same road and who have been in that same place asking these questions. There's some comfort in that. There's also, I think, we need to know that it's okay. We see this, and I'm going to talk more about this, we, we have honest questions when we're in pain, and, and God actually invites us to engage him with our honest questions. In all of Job's questions, God says about him, he didn't sin. God is perfectly okay with you coming to him and saying, I don't like this. Yet there's something about us that wants to sort of stuff those honest questions. The psalmist writes and says, uh, recording God's word, call to me when you are in trouble and I will rescue you and you will honor me and glorify me. You never, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but it actually honors God to cry out to him in your pain and suffering when you find yourself in the darkness. It, 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 it's honoring to him. And, and 
And I think thirdly, another observation is in all of our suffering and our pain and when the lights are off and life goes dark on us, I think one thing we are reminded of is that we are simply not in control. Now, I know that may be a shock to some of you that you're not in total control of your life. But when suffering happens, you realize, I'm not in total control. Elaine Prevole um, says this. She says, I believe the crux of the mystery of suffering is the tension in everyday life between control and vulnerability. Suffering more than any other human experience has the capacity to subvert our ingrained illusion that we control the course of events in our lives. Suffering challenges our idol of self-sufficiency, inviting us to recognize that we are not now and never were calling the shots. So, we have these questions, but how do we see God in the dark? I mean, what are we, are we just supposed to suck it up? I mean, how, how, do, we, how do we see it? I just want to say that, that I just want to offer the, the, the thought of uh, just a little bit of light in the darkness makes a huge difference. It doesn't have to be huge, but just something to, to grab a hold of when you find yourself in the darkness. It, it, it causes the fear to subside. A, a, a guy who was actually was a professor of mine in, in grad school, he was telling the story of how he and his wife went on a, uh, a tour of the Carlsbad Caverns. Uh, and he was, as I remember him telling the story, he was descending down these steps into the caverns and he was holding on to this rope and they were getting deeper and deeper and it was getting darker and darker. And I guess at one point in time of the tour, there was no more rope. You just sort of had to grope, <laughs> kind of put your hands on the walls and sort of make your way. And they were down this one spot and the tour guide was talking and no one could see anything. And this guy's wife, who is uh, not a fearful person, not an anxious person, in this complete darkness where she couldn't see anything, and the thought of being hundreds of feet underground began to overwhelm her. And she started to have a panic attack. Uh, it was the first one in her life. And, um, and Larry uh, was, was trying to calm his wife down, but no matter what he said, no matter what kind of logic he tried to express to her that they were going to be okay, and how many times he told her, thousands of people have done this and no one has died, um, his wife was losing it. And so he, he, had, uh, he felt like God gave him an idea, and he took his, uh, you know, some of you are not old enough to remember these, but a little Casio watch, that has a little button on the side of it, and you push it, and the background of the watch would just illuminate. Um, you know, now you, your, your smartphones, you get flashlights on them, you get, they're really bright, but it's just very dim light, and he pushed the button on his watch, and his wife saw it, and it just gave just a little teeny bit of light in the darkness, and the fear started to just slowly recede. Um, and then he let his finger off the button, and the fear gave, came back. And so what he did is he took his watch off and gave it to his wife and said, push the button anytime you feel like the fear is pressing in again. And she just held her finger on the button the rest of the tour. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't much light. Uh, the darkness, there was way more darkness than there was light. But let me just say this. I just want to offer you a little bit of light. If you ever find yourself in this place of darkness, or, or if you are now in a place of darkness, that you could, that could perhaps help you. Um, and it comes from an unusual place. 
It's a little bit different. And it comes to this place, if you read Job, or if you read uh, any of, uh, really, it's all through the scriptures. It's this idea of, of lament. It's an idea of, of a, a lament. A, a lament, there's a book in the Bible called Lamentations. It's, it's really, it's a funeral. It's a chapters of just, you know, a verse after verse of a funeral. Uh, lament is, is a moan or to wail or groan. It's to, it's to express sorrow out loud, like quite loudly. And uh, this is common in many cultures. And in the scriptures, you see lament over and over again. And one of the things that Job is doing as he's asking his questions, he's, he's being led to a point where he is going to, to process his pain, his disappointment, his frustration, his anger with God through a lament. And it's going to lead him somewhere. It's just going to give him a little bit of light in the darkness. And I want to show you what a lament is and give you some examples. And I just want to say this to you. Many of you, many of us have experienced significant loss in life. And sometimes it comes at a very young age. And what happens is, is we, we, we tend to stuff it. And because we don't, we don't, we think it's bad to express our sorrow. Uh, we want to want to get over it, and frankly, you just don't get over it. You you, you keep you keep going through it, and it, it but it marks you. Uh, but oftentimes, you know, we experience loss when we're age seventeen, and we never appropriately deal with that loss. We get stuck as a seventeen-year-old, and we spin. We get stuck. Lament is a way of dealing with our grief and our disappointments in the darkness when we can't see God. And actually leads us to a place where we get to see God in our darkness. Here's what a lament sounds like. It begins with complaining to God. Now, some of us, this is a natural gifting we have. All right? So this part comes really easy. All right? But, but here's the deal. Complaining to God is something that the, the scripture writers did quite often. I'm just going to read some verses uh, uh, to you from different part, portions of scripture. Get, just get a sense of how naturally this happened. Now, again, we think this is bad, this is disrespectful, this is irreverent. No, this is actually very normal. Psalm 142, with my voice I cry out to the Lord, with my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord, I pour out my complaint before him. Psalm 13, how long will you forget me, Lord, forever? How long will you look the other way when I am in need? How long must I be hiding daily anguish in my heart? How long shall my enemy have the upper hand? Answer me, O Lord my God. Give me light in my darkness. Habakkuk chapter 1. O Lord, how long must I call for help before you will listen? I shout to you in vain. There is no answer. Help, murder, I cry. But no one comes to save. Psalm 42. We are facing death threats constantly because of serving you. We're like sheep awaiting slaughter. Wake up. Rouse yourself. Don't sleep, O Lord. Are we cast off forever? Why do you look the other way? Why do you ignore our sorrows and oppression? Can you hear the complaints? God, are you taking a nap? Why is it when I look to you, you just you turn your face and look the other way? Now, I want you to understand this. Complaining to God is worship. Complaining about God is rebellion. Complaining to God is worship. It is 
it, it is, it is when you lament, and now we, we don't just stay here, we're going we're gonna, to we're move here, but complaining to God, letting him know your disappointment, that's worship. I don't know if you ever thought about that way. And maybe we should sing some songs. God, where are you? We can't find you. This stinks. That would just, that would just, I mean, that would actually echo some of our, you know, that would, some of our emotion. One of the frustrating things about when you're coming to church and when you're in the darkness is there's a lot of happy songs. And I'm not happy. Well, you need to learn how to lament. And it, it begins with complaining. The second thing, um, uh, about a lament is, is reminding God of his promises, his reputation, and his truth. God, you said this. You promised this. Um, read a, 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 just some scripture that has something to do with this. It's from the book of Genesis. Remember the story of Jacob and Esau? Uh, Jacob goes to his ancestors' land to go for a while because he stole his brother Esau's birthright and blessing and his brother wants to kill him, so he's gonna go away for a while. But God said, I'm gonna bring you back and I'm gonna bless you and I'm, I'm, good things are gonna be in store for you when you come back. Jacob is coming back and as he gets back to the promised land, the news is reported to him that his brother Esau is headed his direction with 400 armed men. Okay, this sounds a bit intimidating. Sounds like war. Here's Jacob's prayer. Then Jacob prayed, O God of Abraham, my grandfather, and of my father Isaac, O Jehovah, who told me to return to the land of my relatives and said, you would do me good. Do you hear what Jacob's doing here? God, you said. You, you promised to do me good and to multiply my descendants until they become as the sands along the shores. Too many to count. God, you said you would bless, and right now it looks like I'm going to die. He's reminding God of what he said. So we begin by complaining. We don't, we, we don't stay in the complaint mode, but part of the complaint is reminding God of what he said and reminding him about justice. And it leads us to the third thing, which is, which is appeal to God's nature, his character, and his attributes. It's reminding God of who he is. And here's some scripture that, that fits under that. Psalm 3, verse 3. But Lord, you are my shield, my glory, and my only hope. You alone can lift my head now bowed in shame. God, you're my shield. This is, you're, you're compassionate. Your love is unfailing. I'm appealing to that in my situation. So we complain, we remind God of his promises, we appeal to who he is, his character, and lastly, we put our, our, your, your trust in his wisdom. Put our trust in his wisdom. We land in a place of trust. Psalm 13, I will always trust you in your mercy and I, I shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has blessed me so richly. Then I prayed to Jehovah the Lord. This is Psalm 142. I pray to Jehovah Lord, I pled, you are my only place of refuge. Only you can keep me safe. 65% of all the Psalms are laments. And they begin with complaints and they end in a place of, of trust. Complaining, reminding God, appealing to him and placing your trust in him. And, um, and this is, you need to remember how to do this. So if you just follow the first letter of each step, that'll be, remember, it'll be quite memorable for you, okay? <laughs> Because when you're going through it, all right, when you're going through it, you need to remember how to do this. So just think of that word. I can't even say it because my mom would be so disappointed in me. 
When you're slogging through it, you need to complain. You need to remind God. You need to appeal to him. To this, God, you're compassionate, and I'm not feeling your compassion right now. And it lead us to a place of putting our trust in him. Some of you have experienced such significant loss. You need to sit down. You need to spend a week with God and just record all your losses because you've never dealt with them. You need to record your losses and lament. God, where were you when I was abused? God, why did you let my dad die when I was nine? God, why did I have to move every 14 months? You just need to process that stuff. And I just want to read a few laments that I've written. Just give you some examples. These are not personal to me, but this is what they could sound like. And this is worship, friends. This is, this is worship. So I, I've written a lament for someone who, whose marriage has fallen apart. Here's what, this is what it could sound like for you. You could write, God, where were you when my marriage fell apart? I cried out to you. I prayed that you would save my marriage, but you did nothing. I didn't hear one peep out of you. Your word says that you hate divorce. Why didn't you do something then? Your word says that people who sow seeds of peace are your true sons. Do you know how often I fought for peace, God? You are the great reconciler. You are the God who thought of relationships. I'm weak. I'm tired. I'm angry. You are the God who will not break a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. So God, you are my rock. When the flood waters rise, I stand on you. My feet are firm. God, you guide. I don't know what the future holds, but I'm all ears. I'll listen to you. And then here's another lament that be written by a parent whose children, um, after years of teaching them about God, have wandered away and have rejected God. This is what a lament could sound like for you if this would be a situation that you're in. God, why is it that I did everything you said I should do in raising my kids, but today both of them reject you? Do you have any idea how painful for me it is to see my sons go through life wanting nothing to do with the church? I prayed for them for 18 years as they grew up. Did you even listen? Did you hear me? Were you asleep? Somewhere in the Bible it says, train up a child in the right direction, they won't depart from it. So what's going on? What was the point of telling me about telling them about you for 18 years? Do you have any idea how this is tearing me up inside? God, you are true. Your promises are unfailing. You're compassionate. Have mercy on me. Lord, you're all I have. I'm not turning to anyone else. This darkness is heavy. I'm suffocating in it, but you are my light. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. I choose, to, I choose to trust you. I choose to trust that you hear me. Some of you need to complain, to remind, appeal, and put your trust in God and know that that's worship. And as you do, it's just a little bit of light. Don't get stuck on the complain mode. Again, that comes to us pretty naturally. But we're, we're working our way in time working our way to trust. I've asked Laura to come and just sing a song over us as we wrap up this morning. 
a song that will give us some space to respond to God. I want to encourage you as she sings to let these words just wash over you. And would you just process this question of Jesus, what are you saying to me today? What are you saying? What's my response that you're asking for?